going to, uh, we're in our, our series in Proverbs, but we're going to look at Psalm 127. Psalm 127 is the only psalm in the Bible that is written by Solomon. And so it's interesting that we have the wisdom of the Proverbs cast into the genre of a song. It's a little bit like uh, Paul McCartney, who's a painter. I didn't know he was a painter until this week. He's a songwriter, but he casts his art into the form now of painting. Well, the writer of uh, Psalm 127 is Solomon. He casts his wisdom into a song. But Psalm 127 was always paired with Psalm 128. I have no idea who wrote Psalm 128. I doubt it was Solomon. But from a literary standpoint, these two psalms go together because they talk about a complementary theme, and that is building a family that impacts the next generation. And here on the, uh, the morning that, uh, this is the, the week before school starts, I want to talk about building a family that impacts the next generation. Now, to begin, I want you to imagine a upscale hamburger joint in the Ballard section of Seattle called Giddy Up Burgers and Greens. And I want to describe to you an event that took place about two weeks ago that was a huge milestone event in my life. I'll give you a little backstory. When our family gets together in Seattle, we are 15 people. And uh, on July 27th, we had something big to celebrate. Five of us were going on a short-term mission trip to the Dominican Republic. So we planned to get together in a send-off. Where do we go? We went to Giddy Up Burgers and Greens because lots of seating and reasonable for me to pick up the tab, <laughs> which was important. We were there for about an hour. Uh, younger kids were playing in the play area. Adults were talking, clustered at various tables, having conversations. It was a great time. Then we, uh, we piled into the cars and headed off to Seattle-Tacoma Airport. There's us just before we left, and I snapped, I snapped this picture uh, for a reason. We then went to SeaTac Airport. We gave hugs, and, and they were off. Well, the reason why I snapped the picture of all of us together was that my mind flashed back 25 years before to our house in Dallas. And every single night, I had the same prayer that I prayed literally every night that I was at home, maybe thousands of times. And the prayer went like this, Father, I pray that you would help Sarah lead many people to Christ. I pray that you would help Kristen lead many people to Christ. I prayed that prayer thousands of times throughout their childhood. Like everyone, we went through crazy times in our family. We went through years of chaos and sibling rivalry and fighting and years where I thought, oh, that prayer will never get answered. <laughs> uh, and yet, I still maintain that value and wanted God to do something significantly. And as we prepared to go to the airport and I snapped that picture, I realized that God had answered a decades-long prayer because our two sons-in-law were taking three of our grandkids to the Dominican Republic specifically 
to share the gospel with families that they would meet in impoverished rural parts of the Dominican Republic. And I think, wow, Lord, you, you answered a decade long, decades-long prayer that my kids would impact the next generation, and here are three of my, my grandkids impacting the next generation. Thank you for answering that prayer. I hope that you have a vision that your family would impact the next generation in some way. Maybe through your grandchildren, maybe through nieces and nephews, maybe through brothers and sisters. I heard one sister say to her brother, said to her brother, you are impacting my kids in ways that you have, you have no idea how positive they are. We, we ought to have that aspiration. How do you build a family that impacts the next generation? That's what these two psalms are really, uh, really devoted to. I go back to that rocking chair. I'm rocking in Dallas with these little infants praying, Jesus, Father, help this child impact the next generation. How do you do it? How do you do it? These psalms tell us how. We, have, we see three attitudes in these psalms. We'll go back and forth between these two psalms, but the first thing is this. If you want to grow a family that impacts the next generation, it begins with the God-centeredness of your home. I'm talking about a God-centered culture that you build into your home. It's never too late to build a God-centered culture into your home. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early and retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved, even in his sleep. Let's focus on that first phrase for a moment, unless the Lord builds the house. Some of you in here have built a house. And you know how exciting that is at first until you get into the project. And then you realize that there's all these decisions you have to make. And decision fatigue sets in. And you begin to say, I don't care what the color on the trim is in the bathroom. I don't care who makes the faucets, whether it's Kohler or somebody else. Decision fatigue sets in. But you feel pressure because these are choices that you will have to live with for years and years to come. When we built this facility 18 years ago, I can remember coming down here every day. And there were times where Art Gorman, who was our general contractor, would say, Rod, God is really with us in this project. I'm telling you, God is with us in this project. We are finding ways to save money. We're seeing really cool things that we can do to make this a better thing. God is with us in this project. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain and build it. You've, you've, you've experienced that on the physical level. Solomon is taking that physical idea and bringing it into the spiritual level. And what he's saying is, is unless the Lord builds the love inside your family, the character in your, inside your family, Unless the Lord is growing up your kids, you're kind of laboring in vain. You're kind of, and so this is a call for a God-centeredness as you bring up the kids in your family. 
You can have the nicest furniture. You can have the best cars in the garage. You can be doing religious things with your kids. If God is not at the center culturally, Solomon suggests that your marriage and your family is on shaky ground. So how does this work? We go, we go back to the text and think about the main source of security in the ancient world. The main source of security in the ancient world was not your home. Your home in the ancient world was made out of vulnerable material. The source of security was the city wall. And on city walls, there would be these towers, and you would look out at the countryside, and you would see, is there, are there enemies coming toward us? And if there were, you'd close the massive oak doors, and you'd retreat to your house. However, if somebody wanted to get through those city walls, could they? Yes, they could. If somebody wanted to get into your house, could they? Oh, yeah. So you'd post a guard, but trust in the Lord. You'd field an army, but you'd trust in God. And the same thing ought to be true with us as we think about our family. The ultimate guardian of our home physically is the Lord, and the ultimate guardian of our children physically, emotionally, and spiritually likewise is the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain to build it. So let me just pause for a quick application. The way that uh, I tended to do this when our kids were little was I would have this interplay between prayer and gratitude, prayer and gratitude, prayer and gratitude. For decades, I had prayed a prayer over my wife and my kids. Father, I pray that you would protect my family physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I prayed that thousands of times for Cindy and our kids, prayer and gratitude. So one time our daughter Sarah was in a rollover accident near Jackson, Mississippi. It was bad. Car was totally destroyed. And Sarah and the person that she was driving with got out of the car and walked out with no scratch. And it just so happened that the part of Jackson she was, she was in was where the best man in our wedding lived. And my good friend, Mac McGee, drove half an hour to the crash site, picked up my daughter, took my daughter to his house, and comforted her and Cindy and me <laughs> after we heard about the accident. Prayer and gratitude. That, that builds a culture of trust in your home. One time, my daughter Kristen told me she was in a near head-on collision and a jet ski on Grand Lake. She described this to me in detail. And I'm thinking, Lord, thank you. My daughter is in front of me and she's okay. Caleb was on a camp out one time and he was holding a can of Coleman fuel. The fuel caught fire. The fire travels up the stream of fuel and he shoved the fuel out of the way as it caught fire. I wasn't there to see it. it was, somebody told me about this. I just, prayer, prayer thank, thanks to God. Prayer and gratitude build a culture of trust within your family. I can't follow my kids all over the place. I can't, you know, control them. Don't touch that. No, 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 don't, don't do that. Put your turn single on. Can't do that. 
I've got to trust that God is in control. Now, let's switch from family to work. Culture of trust in the family has got to, uh, to extend to a culture of trust uh, at the work. They're tied together. So Solomon says, it's vain for you to rise up early and retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. You know, before the fall, work was energizing. Adam and Eve loved work. After the fall, work is exhausting. God says to Adam and Eve, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for from it you were taken. Work after the fall is painful, it is exhausting, it is fallen, it's complicated, it's, it's difficult. And if we're going to build a culture of trust at home, but we don't have a culture of trust at work, we don't have that comprehensive culture of trust that's going to build a strong family. In a God-centered home, family life and work life are connected. And if I'm going to trust God for my home, I simultaneously have to trust God for my work, making sure that I, I depend upon Him in both of those areas simultaneously. Well, now we shift to Psalm 128. And in Psalm 128, um, we see a similar theme, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in His ways. So this culture of trust that we have at home is now joined to this attitude of obedience. So it's trusting at home and obeying at home, trusting and obeying at the same time. Zero in on the idea of fear. Fearing means reverencing. I stand in awe of the greatness of God. Fearing is sensing God's majesty and His greatness. Fearing God makes me walk in His ways. This illustration is going to sound very weird to you, but, but it's really true. I fear my wife. I fear her. What I mean by that is I reverence the gift that she is to our family. I reverence the gift that she is to me, the gift that she is to our children individually. I reverence the role that she plays as a grandmother. I respect that. And the respect that I have for my wife moves me to do the disciplines of being a husband. If you reverence God, it leads toward authentic and genuine obedience. And obedience is necessary in the home. 128 verses 1 and 3. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in His ways, practicing trust and obedience. Your wife will be a fruitful vine within your home. Now, that means probably little to, to most of us who are not vine growers. But viticulture was the hardest of all agricultural forms in the ancient world. It was so labor-intensive and so difficult. And if you were a farmer, a gardener of a vine, you were always walking through the vine, snipping and pruning and lifting up little branches. It was a constant 
set of disciplines that you did in order to have good grapes for fine, fine wine. Same with a marriage. If you want, a, you want a fruitful marriage, it is going to take hard work. And you have to submit to the disciplines of being a husband. That's a set of disciplines. You've got to submit to the disciplines of being a wife. That is a set of disciplines. They're mutual and complementary. But this verse suggests that you have to work at it as a matter of genuine obedience. He goes from there to this other beautiful illustration from an olive tree to, uh, from a, a vine to an olive shoot. He says that your children will be like olive shoots around your table. You know, the most significant cash crop in the ancient world was olive oil. You know, if you think about the oil that we extract out of the ground as a fuel for our cars and factories and manufacturing. Well, olive oil in the ancient world was very similar. It was, it was a source of fuel. It was a source of medicine. It was a source of food. And it was hard to make olive oil. And what he's saying is that if you want children who build up and impact the next generation, you have to submit to the disciplines of bringing up kids. It is trust in the Lord, and it's a set of disciplines at the same time. Obedience in the home means that you work to cultivate the potential resident inside your kids. Those of you who have kids know, no child is the same. They're not the same. One child comes out of the womb, they're calm, they don't cry. The, the first week that they're born, they sleep eight hours. You think, man, I got this parenting thing down pat. The next one who comes out has a bullhorn and a whistle, and they're they're showing you they're the boss. They, they, they are different from the moment they're born. And the discipline of being a parent, bringing up these wonderful olive shoots around your table, is the discipline of saying, what has God given me? And how do I submit to the discipline of bringing out their potential in a Christ-centered environment, a Christ-centered culture? So what Psalm 127 and 128 are saying is you want to build a family that impacts the next generation. It starts with a culture at home. It's a culture of radical trust and obedience where God is at the center. And then we come to the next one, uh, the next phase. Growing a family that impacts the next generation comes when we enjoy the simple pleasures of family life as a gift from God. These two Psalms very clearly zero in on the simple pleasures of family life as a gift from God. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. And then he says it's an olive branch, note, note the key word, around your table. Around your table. So think about this picture. For the Hebrews, family time was, was prime time. They were out in the fields all day long. They'd come in from the fields. They would celebrate by having a meal around, around the table. That's hard to do these days. It's really hard to do. Family dinner times are really a challenge um, these days. But the kids would sit around the table in ancient times hanging out with their parents. I was living in Paris in 1977, 
my college roommate and I were in a, were in a home where they practiced the traditional uh, Parisian meal together, which meant you sat around the table for two hours, two hours, talking about your day. No screens, no texts, no fidgeting, and it was in French. And I can remember thinking, wow, I mean, I'm really getting to know the other students who are living with us in this, in this house. Well, that was, that was, uh, that was the, the vision. Now, why is this so especially important in, in, in these days? Well, because adult time is fast, child time is slow. Um, when you have a spare moment in your adult time, you whip out your phone and check your email, Facebook, Twitter, and so on and so forth. When kids have spare moments before they get their phones, um, they are in the present, observing you and watching you. So years ago, I, I read this, this short poem that's really a, really a great poem. When as a child I laughed and wept, time crept. When as a youth I dreamed and talked, time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. And later, as I older grew, time flew. Soon I shall find while traveling on time gone. And I, I really relate to this because, you know, we had a, our grandkids, were, two of our grandkids were with us for, for a week. And I'm really realizing how slow things were when we were together. And how, you know, the simple pleasures of my granddaughter finding a frog and then naming the frog sweetie pie and then saying no her name is spotty because it was a spotted frog and then no i'm going to call her dotty and she wanted me to enter into the significance of the naming of her frog time slows down and then she was told by her mother my daughter she could not take the frog on the plane which provoked lots of tears and discussions and so in a, in a ceremony, we let the frog go in the backyard. You know, he was still alive. We let him go in the backyard. Time slowing way, way down, way down. And yet the time that slowed down for her, I reaped a gift. And the gift was that she sent me a little video. And on the video was, Papa, I found a frog. She shows me this gigantic frog that was flopping out of her small hand. And this frog was just like, like this, you know, in, in, in her hand. But, you know, time is slow. And if you, if you want to build a family that impacts the next generation, you've got to go at the speed of the child you're with. That's love. It's not, not loving to tell a child to hurry up who fundamentally can't go at the speed you're with. Now, I've done that many times, all right? I mean, the thing is, you, you, you adjust to the speed of the person that you're with. Children need not just that slowing down, but they need also to hear our delight. Olive plants around the table provided time for mom and dad to affirm the work the kids had done during the day. Um, I, I love it that, that he says the fruit of the womb is a reward because the idea of, of reward was not payment for work done. 
The idea of reward was this is a grace reward. Sounds kind of antithetical, doesn't it? But that's the way the Hebrew word goes. It's a grace reward. It is a thing given because, because God showers His grace upon you. So if, if God gives you a child as a gift, then our response as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and nieces, and our, our, our role then is to shower grace on the child. And so sometimes what that means is you just say, you, you are such a blessing to me. You're such a gift to our family. You're a treasure. We cherish you just for you. I used to say to my kids, out of, out of all the parents in the world, God chose to give you to me. And I am incredibly grateful for that. Outside the world, the world thrives on performance. Perform, you get rewarded. Screw up, and you get demoted. And the family, it ought to be a place where there is lavish grace. And that lavish grace would be, would be extended to those olive shoots around the table. The parents saw the potential there. Now, again, we want to switch from the home to the work. The fruit of the room is a reward. That's home. Um, now we go, we go to, to work. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in His ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, that is a reference to work, it, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Not will, but it will be well with you. And the idea here is that as I'm walking in the Lord, walking in His ways, there will be simple pleasures that come from my work that I can enjoy as, as gifts from God. Now, let me give you a little background. In, in the Old Testament, God promised that the people, of, people in Israel would enjoy their work if they were staying very close to God. He says, if you stay close to me, you will love your work. I will bless your work. You go far from me, and your work will become a problem. In the New Testament, God does not promise us career blessings, doesn't promise material wealth. Moreover, we live in a fallen world and sometimes work is, is delightfully, joyfully great, and sometimes it's a hassle, and we'd rather not be there. But here's what God does hold forth. It's this principle. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. It's the idea that if I'm seeking first God's kingdom, that in some way God will pour out blessing upon my work. Now, it might not be in the moment. I could be in a bad job that I hate. But in some way, God is going to pour out blessing upon my work, even in that job that I do hate. I remember talking to a guy who said, I hate my job. And I don't like the people I work for. But he told me, he said, but you know, I've got this, this gift and I determined that when I use my gift well, as unto Jesus, I am going to take pleasure in what I do. And it was a game changer in terms of how he navigated a painful job in a godly way. So you 
you, you just appreciate the blessings that come your way. This is hard in our culture. I read an article recently in which the, the, the author described our culture. He says, it's like we in our culture have, now listen to this, promiscuous souls. Souls that are never satisfied. Souls that are incapable of seeing small blessings at work. Souls that don't have the ability to thank God for small things that He does to make our work joyful in the moment. And if you want a, if you want a family that impacts the next generation, you got to do that in your family, but you also have to extend that into your work so that the culture of family and the culture of work is a culture where you see the small gifts of God that He's brought into your life. Now, here's, here's a third way that you grow a family that impacts the next generation. You expect God to extend blessing out into your community and into your world. Now, look, I'm at an age where I, I saw that firsthand two weeks ago. I had prayed, Lord, make my kids influence the next generation. I saw that in action two weeks ago. I'm thankful for it. I'm humbled by it. But I'm at an age where that's, I've, I've seen that. For most of your life as a young parent or as a grandparent of young kids, you got to do it by faith. And here's what he says at, the, at, the, at Psalm 127, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. What, what does an arrow fundamentally do? You pull back the arrow and you send forth the arrow out there to penetrate something. And parents who are, who are pulling back on the arrows their kids are sending their kids out into the future to penetrate that next generation, to have influence, to do something. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man, the mom and the dad, whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. Well, as you probably know, kids in ancient Israel were an economic asset. The more you have, the more hands you had on the farm. The more hands you had on the farm, the more property that you developed, the more grain in your barn and the more sheep in your pastures, the more cattle in your pastures. And because lifespans were relatively short, uh, there were parents who got into their 40s and their 50s and they couldn't work with the energy that they had in their 20s and 30s, so they depended upon their kids to do the farming and your kids were your retirement in the ancient world. They were your 401k. They were your 403b. They were your IRA. They were your pension in the ancient world. So he's saying, you know, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them because you're taken care of in your, in your, older, in your older age. I think a full quiver was something like five to seven arrows. It was a lot of kids, many ancient families had, had more than that. How does that work today? Are kids an economic asset today? No, <laughs> they're not. Kids uh, cost you money. I was, I was looking at an article recently that said that it estimated that the cost of bringing a child through birth through college is something like $265,000. I have no idea where they got that. I even know if it's true but they're not, an, they're not an economic asset. 
Are they a spiritual asset? Yes. They are most definitely a spiritual asset. And the idea with a child is that child is sent forth into that next generation to have influence in a generation that you will not inhabit. They will have influence in places where you cannot go. They will have gifts that you do not have. They will bring results that you cannot bring. And so the challenge, the aspiration that all parents should have, and I would add aunts and uncles and grandparents ought to have, is that I have a family that goes forth and impacts the next generation in a great way. Core application on this. If you want to help your child become an arrow that flies straight and true into the next generation, you've got to pay attention to your marriage. You've got to pay attention to your marriage. If you're a great dad and a lousy husband, that's not good enough. If you're a great mom but a rude and disrespectful wife, that's not good enough. You're doing your child a disservice. A child who's going to impact the next generation wants to see not perfection in mom and dad. They want to see authenticity. They want to see a mom and dad who are real and genuine and work through problems with godly sincerity. Don't forget the grandparents either, because I talk to many people who say, you know, most important person in my spiritual life was my grandmother or my grandfather. I had a grandmother who died when she was 102 years old, and I didn't really know my, my grandfather that well. He died when I was about nine years old, but my grandmother I got to know very well, and she was a gem and had tremendous influence on, on me and on my, on my, my sisters. Psalm 128 ends this way. Here's the generational blessing. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Here's a, a psalmist is picturing an aged mom and dad. And the mom and dad are looking out at their family. It's not going to be a perfect family. No families are perfect. But it's going to be a family where they see the blessings extended generationally, the blessings of faith. And that, that psalmist is saying, that's a good thing. That's a thing that we should aspire to. If you build a family that influences the next generation, you will have built a family the changes, the city, the state, the nation, and the world. As we close today, I want to I bring up um, Sean Conrad and Nick Pomfret. And uh, we, uh, I'm, we're going to kind of flesh this out in terms of how this is going to work at Grace Community Church. Well, good morning. This is Nick. Nick loves the children here at Grace. If you did not know that, I want you to know that it's true. And if you do not know Nick, you need to know Nick. Come up, shake his hand after the service, seek him out in the children's department. Um, he has been here a whole two and a half months now. Um, he has been busy. He jumped right in and learned how the ministry has been run to date. Um, 
But what I get to hear almost every day is the p- 